Hi, my name is Eric Wooten, and I'm one of the editors here at Good Authority. Today, I am joined by two of my fellow editors to talk about the many things in the world of foreign policy and international security that didn't happen in 2023. First of all, I have Elizabeth Saunders here, who's one of my colleagues at Georgetown University. She's the author of two books. One is called Leaders at War, and a new book that's coming out with Princeton University Press very soon, The Insider's Game, How Elites Make War and Peace. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Eric. Also joining with me here is Kim Yi Jiang, who is our editor-in-chief at Good Authority, and she's an associate professor at, of political science at UC Riverside. She's an expert on Africa especially, and she's published a book, Doomed Interventions, The Failure of Global Responses to AIDS in Africa. Hi, Kim. Hi, Eric. Elizabeth, you wrote a post for Good Authority about the things that didn't happen in 2023. And the first one really stuck out. It's the absence of nuclear war. Well, that's at least a good start here. Elizabeth, do you want to say something? Why is that so special that we didn't see a nuclear war in 2023? Well, Eric, 2023 was a really down year for the international security beat. And it's a beat that uh, readers of the monkey cage and good authority will be familiar with from all of the, we, we had a lot of near misses or people thought they were near misses in terms of nuclear war during the Trump years. And in 2023, we not only saw uh, the continued grinding violence of the war in Ukraine, but also the Hamas attack on Israel and then the Israeli retaliation in Gaza and so many other conflicts that I think it's worth noting that we didn't actually have nuclear escalation. And that's always worth taking note of and appreciating. We can never take it for granted with the number of nuclear weapons in the world the number of aspiring nuclear powers only growing. But it's also a time when we have more and more conflicts that might go, as we say, up the escalation ladder. And so when that uh, when that doesn't happen, it's, it's definitely worth pausing um, and taking note of. So it was a pretty terrible year in international security in many ways, but the fact that there was no nuclear escalation, I think is important. It certainly is, especially now we have at least two wars going on with states that are also nuclear powers. Um, another thing uh, that also didn't happen this year, uh, and that's another good thing, is that the U.S. didn't default on its debt. Why are you? Why should we be celebrating this? And should we be celebrating this? Well, so I should say full disclosure. I I'm I'm much more able to explain how we didn't get a nuclear war, um, and I, and. You know, then I don't have a license to practice IPE, international political economy, um, as I'm as you well know from all the questions I ask you about it. So, um, but I know enough to know it would have been really bad if the U.S. had defaulted on its debt. Um, I think what the two things have in common is uh, that it took real politics, not always visible politics, to to get to the point of avoiding these catastrophic outcomes. Um, in the nuclear case. It was that both sides, Russia and the United States and, and uh, its fellow NATO countries have been really doing a lot to specifically sort of avoid these provocative or accidental scenarios that might trigger escalation. And we can't take for granted that that'll keep happening. In the debt default case, from my admittedly limited understanding of it, it's, it's almost the opposite, where you have a sort of manufactured crisis of the debt limit. And... Uh, it happens over and over again that we come up against a debt limit, which 
my IPE colleagues tell me is sort of unnecessary that we have this debt limit, but it's a politically manufactured limit. And then typically Congress will kick the can down the road or nudge the can a tiny bit forward so that the next set of politicians has to deal with it again. And this was part of the sort of story that culminated in the ouster of Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the House because he did a deal with President Biden that the far right members of the House Republican Caucus really didn't like. This time they gave the can a pretty big kick and they decided the deal that they struck to avoid the default pushes the next debt limit fight past the 2024 presidential elections into early 2025. So what that means is uh, we certainly have not seen the last of the debt limit. I think it's worth noting two things. I mean, it is a good thing that we didn't default on our debt. On the other hand, that we came so close is also not great. Uh, and again, you don't have to be an IPE expert uh, to know, like even I even I can tell that that's, it's not great that we do this all the time now um, for a variety of reasons. But it's also, it's a year in which default has been a serious risk around the world. Um, and I think the fact that the United States is doing this almost from a sort of manufactured political standpoint is doesn't contribute. It doesn't help, at least um, whether whether exactly how much and under what mechanism you'd have to actually ask somebody who knows something about IPE. Right. And and it's uh, it would have also been a big problem for the world, of course. Uh, one of the reasons why we're seeing so many debt crises around the world emerging is the very high interest rates uh, that are right now um, partially a consequence of Federal Reserve policy. And especially a lot of African countries are on the brink of a domestic debt crisis and not because they manufactured it themselves, but because they just face very difficult repayment um, schedules right now. That could also lead to a lot of political unrest in Africa. I'm not sure, Kim, have you been following the news on this? Yeah, Eric, in particular, I mean, there have been these protests in Ghana. The hashtag on uh, Twitter, now known as X, was Occupy Jalorbi House. And really, the the protests in the streets were against the the governor of the Bank of Ghana. But these are demonstrations of protesters' anger towards IMF conditionalities, right? And and some of the things that the, the government of Ghana has had to do to try to maintain, main, maintain its economy, ordinary Ghanaians are really struggling with the austerity policies associated with these changes. I anticipate that these are not going to go away, and this is going to feature actually really importantly in uh, the 2024 elections. So the United States is not the only country having elections in 2024. So is Ghana. And even though we didn't see um, the Ghanaian government, you know, fire the governor of the Bank of Ghana, um, really, and make any meaningful changes towards what the protesters were asking for, right? That's another thing that didn't happen in 2023, a response to these uh, massive protests um, from the Ghanaian government. But um, I think this is a sign we're going to be seeing, and, and a lot of the work actually done by protests in Africa, namely the important work by Adam Branch and Zachariah Mompili in the book Africa Uprising, which is almost a decade old now, this book, but it really caps, cap, encapsulates what's happening on the continent that people, you know, there were these waves of, of protests in in Africa, right? Starting with anti-colonial protests to pro-democracy protests, and now this kind of anti-austerity and democracy is not enough protests, right? Like protests about 
our living, our standards of living are not improving, right? Democracy has not improved our standards of living. And, and these austerity policies that you know, started with structural adjustment in the in the 1990s, but have gotten pretty severe um, with, for example, the COVID pandemic, but also Russia's war in Ukraine has made grain you know, the, the world prices of grain have gone up so significantly that ordinary Africans are having a difficult time meeting their basic needs. And the price of bread and, and other grains has just gone up so much in the last few years that I think we're we're likely to see more of this in 2024. So great. So we have like two main causes of things that are that are creating trouble in, in Africa here. One indeed is sort of US monetary policy and, and interest rates here. And then of course also the war in Ukraine. And that's where we're gonna turn next, right? So that's what's your third point, Elizabeth, that we haven't really seen a breakthrough in the war in Ukraine, perhaps as some people would have hoped. Yeah. So the things that didn't happen this year are some of them are good and some of them are bad that they almost happened. And this is one that people really hoped would happen. And um, a, a breakthrough in Ukraine didn't happen. And it's hard to it's hard to know where to begin with this one, because, you know, for a while it was it was wait and see or people aren't giving the Ukrainians enough credit. And I think by now we have enough analyses from the many excellent military analysts who've been following this closely to say that, you know, it was not the success that people hoped. Um, and I included in the piece links to some important work um, in international relations, because I do think it's important to recognize that just because the line, the, the front line may not have moved that much doesn't mean that countries haven't like a lot happened and they learn countries learn while they fight. We have the so-called bargaining model of war and you know, you learn things about your opponent's capabilities and how your opponent adapts and what they care about, or you can you can kind of probe their their staying power in the war and so forth. And so I think it's wrong to just focus exactly on the, how much the territorial lines of demarcation moved. But you can't get away from the fact that the, there were higher hopes. And fairly or not, I think that means as we go into 2024 and all these elections that are happening, um, not just in the U.S., but also potentially in the U.K., which is another major kind of military supporter of uh, Ukraine, it's going to put pressure on Ukraine, maybe not necessarily to go for outright negotiations, but it's 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 weakening Western solidarity, this feeling that we've poured all this these resources in and they haven't been able to do a lot with it. And they still are extremely dependent on U.S. support, military support and material. So I do think that a lot of these things are linked. Right. So so the, the Ukraine aid bill is currently kind of tied up with border policy in the U.S. and and also tied up with the split in the Republican Party over support for Ukraine and more generally for things like the international order, which includes the international institutions that help other countries manage their debt, our own monetary policy, as we've just been talking about, is, you know, it's managed by the Fed, but it but the debt limit is beyond the, you know, that's under Congress's control. And so there's some weird built in problems with that that are mainly to do with U.S. politics, but they affect all these other countries. And I, I it's hard to see how Ukraine doesn't get caught up in that. And that's before you even get to the problem of thinking about prioritizing the pivot to Asia or, you know, whatever we're calling the pivot to Asia now um, to deal with the rise of China and, of course, helping um, Israel. So the breakthrough in Ukraine 
is is not a totally the lack of a breakthrough in Ukraine is not a totally doom and gloom story. It's certainly not over. But I would also commend Stacey Goddard's recent piece about why negotiations are going to be so, so, so hard in this case. It, this is a case where negotiations have almost everything going against them. So that is a, a disappointment in 2023, I think. Yeah. And on top of that, of course, in Europe, we just had elections in the Netherlands and Slovakia where they elected leaders who want to stop aid to Ukraine. And then, of course, Viktor Orban has just vetoed uh, European Union aid to Ukraine as well. So it seems to be playing in both uh, in both Europe and the United States. Uh, so, Kim, in Africa, we've also had a very intractable, very violent conflict that has um, persisted uh, this year, right? The civil war in the Sudan. Yeah. And, you know, similar to, you know, this hope or expectation that the conflict might end. Um, May Hassan, who's a political scientist at MIT, wrote an essay in Foreign Affairs with Amakaduda, and it was written in May 2023, so just about a month after we started to see this conflict unfolding between um, these two generals, right? One who had been, who had spent his entire career in the army, that's Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, and the other, uh, Mohammed Hamdan, so was formerly a commander of what you know, is known as the Janjaweed militia, right? This um, this group that had been committing violence on behalf of Omar al-Bashir, the deposed leader of Sudan, on behalf of Omar al-Bashir in the Darfur region. Now, May and, and Ahmed's essay on foreign affairs in May 2023, when you read it now, you can, you can almost feel the hopefulness that someone would have intervened to, to do something to try to stop the conflict from escalating out of control. But now we have 7 million Sudanese displaced, according to UNHCR estimates, um, some of them in neighboring countries, Chad and Egypt, some of them internally in the country. Um, and the situation is getting quite bad uh, with the UK foreign minister for Africa calling um, recent events in the Darfur region of Sudan. Let me Let me quote him directly. He said, this has all the hallmarks of ethnic cleansing. Not only, um, and I think this this pertains not just to Sudan, but also to Ukraine, um, you know, breakthroughs didn't happen. Also, people are are losing interest and not paying attention to these conflicts that are that are, you know, really causing some serious harm. Um, and not just in displacement, but in 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 the violence that ordinary people are facing. Yeah, it is really important to also focus our attention on these conflicts that are uh, extremely violent, but are not on the, on the headlines of the New York Times or other American newspapers every single day. And I think Kelly, I would also commend our colleague Kelly Zvogmo's piece where she looks at a lot of stories that you might have missed. And it it actually inspired this post because I, I wanted to talk about things that didn't happen, but things that didn't happen can be good and it can they can be bad. And a lot of them don't make the headlines. So things that didn't happen are headlines in the New York Times. All right. Tell me whether the next one on your list is good or bad. The fact that the United States has not yet repealed uh, a law that was instated right after 9-11 that allows the president a lot of leeway in using force to fight terrorism. Um, what do you think? Well, this one... I guess it's a little bit in the eye of the beholder, but the eyes uh, of the beholders seem to actually have come around to the idea that it's pretty ridiculous that we still have this law on the books for a war that lasted 20 years and now is over. <laughs> and even though the, the circumstances of its ending were very dramatic and violent and tragic, 
most, you know, a majority of Americans and um, probably majority of members of Congress agreed that the war should have ended, um, should, you know, we should have ended that war in Afghanistan. So the fact that this authorization for the use of military force, AUMF, is still on the books is is somewhat amazing. And it's not only that one, though. It's the it's the authorization to use force against Iraq in 2002. And just for good measure, we still have the 1957 Middle East resolution that gave Dwight Eisenhower the authorization to use military force to stop the spread of communism in the Middle East. Uh, that's also still on the books. And our colleague Andy Rudolevich has written a trove of pieces, and I linked to them all in in my piece. And it, you know, it took like a good hour to dig them all up, and there was always one more. I'm not even sure I got all of them because the AUMF is particularly the the one that's really kind of um, oh, I forgot the 1991 Gulf War is the authorization is also still on the books. So um, plenty of reason, plenty of ways you could justify attacking a country in the Middle East if you were inclined to do so if you were president. But the one that's really been used and I think is probably the broadest still is the 2001 AUMF because it covers counterterrorism. And the reason why Andy's written so much about it is because it has been used so often to justify attacks in the, around the world, in Africa, in, uh, in the Middle East especially, but not, certainly not limited to that. And so I think the, the real puzzle is how come everybody thinks this is really silly and yet nothing ever seems to change, right? So the, the legal scholars, there's a wonderful group of legal scholars that uh, have been on top of this issue for a long time, and they a lot of them write for Lawfare, Matt Waxman, among others, and they are always saying we really have gotta like fix this. And and from a political science perspective, I always ask, okay, well, what are the barriers to fixing this? Like, why doesn't this ever get fixed? And to me, the politics of this just favor inertia. And there was some hope before I would say the the latest round of um, the, the the Hamas attack, which really reignited hostilities in the Middle East, including against um, U.S. interests uh, in the Middle East, there was some hope that maybe the the sort of don't want to take a difficult vote that would take presidential power away, and I'd get blamed for a terrorist attack, and the president can't, you know, respond. That that's sort of the fear that had been, or the calculus that had been preventing repeal for a long time. There had been some hope that we'd reach the point where, you know, maybe Joe Biden would be the one to give back this, you know, the president don't like to give back presidential power, but he might have an incentive to do that and uh, or, or conviction to do that. And maybe Congress would be finally ready to do it. And there's some pretty sincere senators who've been working hard on this issue, Tim Kaine, a Democrat, and Todd Young, a Republican. But I think it's so it's such a heavy lift. And then you get something like the the war between Israel and Hamas and the attacks in the Middle East. And I think suddenly that just it just weighs down the political costs even more. And so to get legislation of any kind in Congress on foreign policy is always difficult. It's diff even more difficult in a polarized time. And now you're talking about taking power away from the president and shifting blame back onto Congress. And that is, you know, to me, that explains why it's just a political non-starter. Right. And you see it actually in other areas of foreign policy as well, right? A lot of more foreign economic policies made now through the executive. We're not doing trade agreements anymore. We're calling all kinds of agreements, trade agreements that never used to be trade agreements. And 
Um, uh, the executive takes lots of actions against China without congressional approval. Uh, there's, there's, it seems to be a part of a more general trend, perhaps uh, explained by polarization in Congress, as you, as you suggest there. I think it's also important to point out nobody would ever say this, admit this out loud, right? But we are political scientists, right? We try to find, we try to uncover the incentives. I, th- I think both the president and most members of Congress, excluding those like Kane and Young, who are sort of sincere policy movers on this, they find the status quo, like they benefit from this. The president, any president benefits from the ability to just do it, to use force and have legal cover, not have to actually go ask for votes at the time consuming and you don't always, you know, there's some benefits to having the vote and, but all else equal, this is fine. From a congressional point of view, it's super convenient to be able to not have to vote on a risky war that you might get blamed for if it goes poorly and to be able to complain about the fact that nobody asked you to vote on it. That's a very, like you can get, you can get up on the floor and make speeches and complain and they have it's like it attracts, it, it keeps all the criticism of the commander in chief in the procedural domain, lets them vent, it gives them something to write their constituents about, um, but they don't have to actually take any risky votes. Why would you want to change that absent some good reason? Plus, you have to get them all to agree on what to change it to. That is, uh, I wouldn't hold my breath. Right. And, and so your your last points of things that didn't happen is basically to say there are lots of things we don't know didn't happen. And some of those might have been very scary. Right. We might have had a lot of near misses that we don't know about. Do you have some things in mind where we could have been we could have seen near misses, but we just don't yet know how, how serious they were because we don't yet have access to all the all the information? Yeah, I mean, the classic here would be preventing terrorist attacks. And sometimes that does make the news after the fact, um, but it's never it's it's so much harder to get credit for things that didn't happen. Right. And and um, so I, there undoubtedly there have been plots foiled or intelligence leaks that didn't happen or were contained. And we just won't know about them unless they make them, you know, they get into the media somehow or there's a memoir or eventually these things are declassified and people like me spend their nerdy time like digging through the documents. I think it's also worth noting that it could be that there were almost breakthroughs that didn't happen and that might still happen, right? These these kinds of diplomatic breakthroughs often take time to come to fruition. So you often hear commentators say, well, why doesn't the Biden administration or any administration, why didn't they do anything about that? Well, it's pretty unlikely that they did nothing. It could be that they've done a lot of spade work to try to get something teed up for um, for next year. So I think there's some there's there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. It's it's invisible foreign policy and and it's hard to know um, while you're watching, while you're if you're paying close attention, you still won't be fully informed. Yeah, Elizabeth, I was. I actually was thinking about that a lot when I was reading your piece about Biden's visit to Israel, right? Here's this kind of, you know, there's not a lot of precedent for this. And, but what I loved about your piece was that it went long on, you know, all the things that happen behind the scenes that we don't know about, right? And so even though we're really focused on this particular visit of Biden going to Israel, that, you know, there there are other people, you know, his staff who have been working behind the scenes, but also the piece that you, um, the interview you did with Austin Carson, right? 
and about, you know, the potential for escalation of the Israel-Hamas war into a, a broader regional war, right? That that also gave me kind of a, a way to think about what's happening behind the scenes, like what kinds of, you know, shuttle diplomacy could be happening to to keep that from happening. I learned a lot from those from those two pieces in particular this year. Well, thanks. I mean, I think I think what studying foreign policy has made me realize is that we have to be really humble about what we can about the news that we're consuming in real time and how much it's really telling us. Right. And so one way to think about it is Biden's trip to Israel was a very visible commitment. Right. President flying into a war zone. The only other time that had happened was when Biden had taken the train to Kiev. And even that was sort of carefully calculated in the Russians probably tacitly allowed it. And so this was a very big dramatic statement. And that was it, the point of it, right? That was not meant to be invisible by any stretch. But it enabled a lot of other stuff to go on. And maybe Biden was involved in some of it, most of it probably done by his staff um, and his cabinet members who were also visiting. And we just, it, we have to think about what the Israeli response might have been absent that pressure. Doesn't mean that they have prevented all the bad things from happening. But we we have to, you can't forget that we only see a small subset of selected things that make it into the media. And there have been many cases where declassified documents have really taught us that what we saw at the time was just the wrong story. So I always try to think about that. And it, it gets us back to the very first point about nuclear war, right? So Austin Carson has done a lot of very interesting research his book Secret Wars is probably the most complete statement of this, but he's he's written a lot about Ukraine and how both sides have worked to sort of tacitly almost collude with each other to make sure that certain lines are never crossed so we don't get nuclear escalation. That's that's actually work. It's not an automatic process and we shouldn't take it for granted. And so one thing I hope with these pieces can do is to try to make people to stop and appreciate that Whatever you think of the current foreign policy, the alternative isn't just the opposite of it. It's what if these people didn't do anything or didn't do these things that we don't see and that they may have improved the situation and they can't, we won't actually know. Right. And we could add the absence of a regional war in the Middle East to the things that didn't happen either in 2023, right? Because I thought about that, but the jury's still out. There's still two weeks left. And, uh, yeah. you know, the Red and Sea, the like... Houthi, yeah. I was going to say the Houthi rebels in yeah, Yemen the and the rebels. Red Sea. And the, oh. Yeah. I, I actually did think about that. And then I was thinking about all the things that we didn't... I was thinking about the end of the previous few years, right? So in 2019, I don't think we had... I mean. COVID was on the horizon, but I, I don't know that we thought the whole world would shut down. On the war front, I don't think the the killing of Qasem Soleimani, the um, Iranian general, which sparked a, a major crisis in January 2020, that was not on most people's radar because it was such an escalatory step. I think at the end of 2021, most people did not believe that Putin was really serious about invading Ukraine. And we know that it took some convincing by the Biden administration to convince other governments that he was really serious. And then, you know, nobody had Hamas attacking Israel on their 2023 prediction list. So I think uh, I'm not I, I, I hesitated to close the books on a wider Middle East war in 2023 from previous uh again, you know, we have to be humble when we think about prediction in this business. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I wasn't thinking it. of it in terms of prediction, more in sort of looking back that it hasn't yes, happened yes. yet. Yes, it is definitely not, not a good, it is definitely a non-event that is worth noting uh, right. that we have not yet seen, but yet is doing a lot of work there. I would love to turn the tables on both of you and ask you both, because um, most of the things that I, that I put on my list have something to do with U.S. foreign policy, and it's not because I think the U.S. Uh, is the only thing we're studying. It's just what I, that's what I know best. And I would love to hear what what other things you would put on the list of things that didn't happen in 2023. Well, I have something I I don't know that it's good news, um, but doesn't okay. have to be good news. Okay, good because I I don't think I have a lot of that. But South Africa didn't have to arrest and turn over Putin to the ICC. So um, right, so everyone knows from reading Kelly Zogbo's piece on um, the the warrants that the International Criminal Court had had put out for Putin. You know, she wrote that piece earlier this year. Well, Putin was scheduled to go to the BRICS meeting that was going to be held in South Africa. And there was a lot of concern. Well, what is South Africa going to do? You know, there's this arrest warrant out for this guy who's supposed to come into their country. And so technically, you know, as signatories, they should detain and turn him over to the International Criminal Court. And there was a lot of concern about that. And in the end, um, you know, I think South Africa's president, Zoro Ramaphosa, was probably like, hey, don't come, you know. And and in the end, you know, Putin decided. Like a family gathering with a crazy uncle, right? right. It's like, maybe <laughs> just don't come this year. So so ends up, Putin decides to deliver his remarks remotely, right? So, um, so he doesn't step foot in South Africa. So South Africa doesn't have, because I don't think South Africa would have detained him. And that would have been, you know, that would have just brought more issues to South Africa. And so by his not physically stepping foot in South Africa, they're not they're not put in the awkward position of having the opportunity to detain him and turn him over to the ICC and then not doing it. So um, so there's something that didn't happen. Putin's arrest warrant gets to continue to be out there in the world. And South Africa doesn't have to be the bad guy and turn him in. Yeah, I think that definitely counts as a mixed a mixed outcome. But it underscores, right, this there's a lot of hidden diplomacy that we never see, right? And and it, that maybe both sides would never actually publicly admit to. Yeah. And I also uh, think it it underscores what Kelly writes in her piece about how even if the warrant right is never acted upon, it does have some power, right? It's limiting his ability to go to South Africa and, and participate in this massive event where BRICS is expanded to include all of these other countries, right? So I, I think that it's not a small thing, this arrest warrant. It changes behavior. It does. Yeah. For sure. Eric, what about you? Um, well, one thing um, uh, that I think is worth noting is that no country at the moment is threatening to leave the European Union, which is kind of remarkable if you step back maybe six or seven years, uh, where after Brexit, people were talking about a Dexit and a Frexit and a Grexit and a Nexit. And all that talk has sort of quieted down a bit. Um, even in the Netherlands, we had this election recently where a party won that officially wants to do a referendum on leaving the EU. Nobody takes this seriously. And in negotiations, this is immediately off the table. And I think that's worth noting that sort of people have really cooled down on this idea that it's a nice idea to um, actually or a good idea for a country to leave the European Union. Even the the Brits are kind of regretting it. They're calling it regrexit now. And it's, uh, you know, so they, they kind of want back in or not really back in. They don't want to be a formal member anymore, but they would like closer ties. Um, we also saw in Poland that a more Eurosceptic party lost the election. 
So in all, I would say that the European Union seems a little bit more stable, perhaps, than it was a few years ago. And that's um, that's kind of notable to reflect on um, as well. Another one, of course, and I'm and then I'm going to hand it back to to Kim, uh, is is China, right? So China hasn't invaded Taiwan, hasn't started a war. In fact, I think it's useful to remind ourselves at times that China hasn't really been in a war since 1979, right? The Sino-Vietnamese War. That's a long time. I just count how many wars the U.S. has been. Elizabeth, I'm sure, knows the answer to that, but it's a lot. Uh, and so there are some things in which uh, ways sort of China is a bit different from Russia and and perhaps. Uh, a little bit more reluctant to uh, to act militarily, although we see some signs of aggression. Um, we haven't yet, at least, seen uh, China uh, use violence, uh, unless you count the sort of border skirmishes with India, where they're throwing rocks at each other uh, in uh, in the mountains. And, uh, that, that's that's yeah. that's that's uh, still a notable uh, absence of violence. Externally, though, I mean, internally, they're they're doing. There, there's a lot of political violence in China that is uh, takes right. Yes, repression, of course. Yeah, I think that's a notable one. I think a lot of analysts are looking to 2024 and the election in Taiwan, and the, of course the election in the U.S. and um, how the Chinese economy does or does not continue to recover from COVID-19. Um, but I, I, I also wanted to add to the list of um, wars that didn't happen. There were major tensions in Kosovo in October, right around the time of the Israel-Hamas, when that conflict was reigniting. And there were some warnings, including from the U.S. government, and that appears to have died down between Serbia Serbia and, uh, and Kosovo. So I think, you know, there definitely are, it's hard to, it's hard to know exactly what went on. And again, this this is um, in the category of diplomacy we might not know about for a while, but I think it's always worth noting when wars don't break out. And and there's also Nagorno-Karabakh where we had a war that actually ended. And that is a challenging thing to categorize as to categorize because 100, 120,000 plus uh, people were displaced. But wars that end, even for the losing side, that can be a path toward potentially stability. So, you know, the long conflicts that end are increasingly rare, I think. And one way they end is is through victory by one side. So it remains to be seen what's going to happen with that. But that we didn't see escalation there, I guess, can be considered an, a, a non-event. Kim, you know more about that conflict than I do. So maybe you want to pick, pick up on that. Yeah, I mean, this... This is a tough one. Nagorno-Karabakh, yeah. I mean, this this is, and, and largely like, you know, the long history of this points to actually domestic politics in, in each, in, in both Armenia and Azerbaijan. And, um, you know, the way the presidents of, of those countries can kind of use this conflict for their own political reasons, right? Um, certainly, it, you know, I, I think it's also going to be, we, you know, we could again go back to Stacey Goddard's piece about territory and negotiations over territory, because this is an ethnic and territorial conflict, right? And so the way towards peace here, we have an old, old piece that was that was published in the Washington Post, but is now on, on good authority that kind of provides this historical context and gives a sense of why we shouldn't expect, we shouldn't expect much headway being made um, in the short run, that it's going to be a longer run issue, and, and largely because of the domestic politics in both Armenia and Azerbaijan, and the way political leaders use this conflict as, as a tool for their own domestic political interests. Well, there goes my attempt to turn that into a 
even remotely positive. <laughs> Sorry, um, I feel like I feel like Debbie yeah. Vigana, but I do have one good thing. I or semi good. I mean, it could be bad in 2024, but for 2023, it's good news. On the foreign policy beat, we always assume anything good can will eventually turn bad. So. <laughs> So I, I'm sure our um, our audience has read Stacey Goddard's excellent piece about uh, the UK policy to send unauthorized migrants to Rwanda. So this was originally announced in April 20 2022 by then Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and it declared that anyone who entered the UK illegally after January 1st, 2022, could be flown to Rwanda. And that Rwanda's government would agree to be responsible for processing and settling these um, these people who are unauthorized to be in the UK. Now, just after Stacey's piece was published, the UK's Home Secretary, James Cleverly, signed a new treaty with Rwanda's Foreign Affairs Minister, Vincent Biruta. And he and the Conservative government under Rishi Sunak claimed that this new treaty addresses concerns of the UK Supreme Court, which ruled that the government's plan was unlawful. Now, people should read Stacey's piece because it focused on how this saga about this this UK refugees to Rwanda policy, it actually puts at risk the Good Friday Agreement. Now, this is the 1998 peace settlement that brought the sectarian conflict in Northern Ireland to an end. But the, the challenge to this UK policy is actually because, you know, Eric was talking about Europe you know, European Union, you know, everyone wants to stay together. It's like, well, the British, you know, they're still, they still want to fall apart in some ways. So the European Court of Human Rights grounded the inaugural flight of asylum seekers in June, 2022, precisely to prevent an Iraqi national from being flown from the UK to Rwanda. And so some of Sunak's cabinet called for the UK to leave the ECHR. And Stacey points out how Britain's moves to separate itself from Europe have unintentionally destabilized Northern Ireland's peace. But there's another angle to this UK refugees to Rwanda policy that I think our audience should know more about. And that's based on my reading of Syracuse political scientist Lamas Abdelati's award-winning book, Discrimination and Delegation, Explaining State Response to Refugees. Now, in this book, it's, it, there's a layered, nuanced argument, but I guess just the main takeaway that I think our audience should know is that migrants being deported from the UK to Rwanda, we should be worried that incoming migrants could face restrictive asylum policies, especially if Rwanda has friendly relations to the country that these migrants are from, right? So, you know, a migrant, say, from um, Chad, who had left Chad, you know, for see, trying to seek asylum in Europe and, and makes their way to the UK, you know, in a way that is unauthorized, and th then they get deported to Chad. Well, then Rwanda could just repatriate them to Chad. Right. And and Abdullati writes about this in her book, and she uses the case of Egypt. When relations between Sudan and Egypt were hostile, Egypt delegated its asylum policy towards Sudanese to the UNHCR. But when relations between Egypt and Sudan improved in 1999, Sudanese refugees faced increasing restrictions in Egypt, meaning extensive detention, deportation. And that's the primary concern that analysts have about the UK refugees to Rwanda, Rwanda policy. It's this term refoulement, which means when refugees are sent to Rwanda, they could be at risk of being returned to their home countries where they could face harm. And, and I guess my good news is this policy 
hasn't so far been successful. No one's been sent to Rwanda yet. Um, and there's a lot of people fighting in the UK to make sure that that doesn't happen. Right. Although I think uh, Rishi Sunak hasn't given up yet. He still is intent to uh, sending people to asylum. It seems like all European governments are juggling to be in first place on having the harshest asylum policy so they can deter as many asylums as they possibly can. I think the honor right now is with the Danish, but uh, the Dutch and others are, are definitely trying to jump in. So I think um, we're, we're coming to an end here, right? We have had a, a really rich discussion. We could talk about many other things. We could talk about Venezuela potentially invi invading Guyana um, soon, I think, maybe. Um, maybe not. Hopefully not. Hopefully that's a thing that didn't happen in 2024 when we, uh, when we talk again next year. Uh, but for now, let me thank uh, Kim and Elizabeth for, uh, for a great chat. And we look forward to seeing you back again on Good Authority. Good Authority's mission is to bring insights from political science to a broader audience. Everything we publish, including this podcast episode, is freely available with no paywall or subscription fee. All pieces are under a Creative Commons license and can be copied and redistributed as long as the work is attributed to us and any changes are noted. We'd like to thank our funders, especially the Carnegie Corporation, the Democracy Fund, and Vanderbilt University. You can find links to everything we've mentioned here on our website, goodauthority.org.